Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 55, I speak with Ran Weingold, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Live Vidua. We discuss his teenage passion to be in business and going from being a club promoter to his military service in Israel to backpacking across Australia and finding love. Why he then studied accounting and worked in investment banking and mergers and acquisitions, as well as venture capital. Why his passion for health and wellness led him and his co-founder to create Live Vidua with brands like 13 Seeds leveraging his business experience to turn it into a publicly traded company and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking for premium, natural, plant-based solutions that support local communities, check out 13seeds.com.au. That's the number one, the number three, S-E-E-D-S.com.au. So I'm here on the podcast with Ran. Vinegold, the Managing Director of Live Vidua. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hi, Derek. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Live Vidua? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in or what roles? Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually started my professional career at KPMG, um, working in audit of all things. Um, I did a bachelor of, um, just a bachelor of commerce business accounting. Um, from there, I moved to investment banking, did a few years in that and then moved to the buy side and worked for um, an alternative asset manager slash VC that looked into investments and acquisitions. Um, at the same time, I was doing my MBA as well, um, which was, I guess, pretty close to what I was working in. It was kind of pretty interesting um, and worked basically across, you know, large corporates to uh, all the way to uh, small startups that I was working with consulting to and, uh, and, concurrently in, and investing in it as well. And so was that what you wanted to do? Like it's a common track, you know, commerce, MBA, M&A. But when you were sort of 18, is that what you, you sort of heart wanted or was that just what everyone around you was sort of pushing you towards? Um, no, I actually did not know what I was gonna, what I wanted to do when I was 18, <laughs> um, like a lot of other 18-year-olds. Um, but I, I guess like I always had a passion for business and had a passion for public markets in particular and companies and always been kind of entrepreneurial and love sort of like, you know, I've been working since I was about 14, 15. Um, and pretty much when I was, when I was 16, 17, already was running my own sort of side hustle in high school. So um, that was sort of uh, always knew I'm going to end up in a business environment, working for business or running a business. Um, that sort of that bug base, I guess, stayed with me. And what was that side hustle in your sort of 15, teenage years at school? What what can you talk us through that? Um, yeah, it's actually um, like a like an under eighteen um, nightclub that like <laughs> I used to work for. Yeah, of all things. <laughs> and, and so, were you a promoter? Were you an event organizer? What was your sort of role in all that? Um, I started as a promoter and then ended up being as like uh, the like I guess like the event organizer. Okay. Um, and so, um, was that something, an idea you came up with yourself or was that, um, an idea that someone else was doing and they kind of recruited you into it? Um, I don't actually remember how it happened. Like it, uh, it's been a while ago, 
uh, I, I think I just sort of started working with other people and then me and one other guy, we basically saw that like, you know, we, we can do it ourselves and just do kind of like another, another, another night, I guess, in a different club, something like that. It was a very long time ago. And, I mean, were your parents in business? What sparked that? Maybe at 10 or 12 years old, what, what initially sparked that passion in sort of business and not just getting a retail teenager job or a McDonald's teenager job? Well, so I actually different. had, um, yeah, I actually had like a hospitality job that lasted for a good part of uh, two hours before, <laughs> um, before I was told. And I kind of understood that, that this is definitely not the right sort of role for me. Um, I had like the occasional retail job here and there, which I didn't mind because I just enjoyed working with people and talking to people and sort of, you know, I guess conversing with them. Um, but, you know, um, I just I just fell into that and I absolutely loved what I was doing when I was in high school. But but what happened in those first two hours? Did you not like being told what to do? Did you come up with, here's 50 ways we should do it better? What, what made you realize two hours into a retail teenage job it wasn't right? Oh, the retail I didn't mind, the hospitality one. Um, you, you've, you've never seen anything worse than me trying to carry a number of plates together. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay. So yeah, just the practical sort of logistics and, and the coordination, you realized it wasn't your strong suit. I, I, I prefer to eat rather than to, to not eat. I prefer to be in the, on the eating side because I'm just terrible at, at like carrying plates around. <laughs> yeah and then so you go into uni you do commerce again common safe sort of path learn the, yeah. the nuts and bolts um i mean was it what you're expecting it's obviously a very abstract form of business when you're you sort of m and in those sort of high level world you're not in the trenches as much you know operating promoting events marketing selling customer facing did you enjoy that or was it you saw as a long-term path to what you wanted yeah, so look, I like that was something I did in high school. I didn't go straight from year 12 into doing my degree because I, I was actually born and raised in Israel. So I did my compulsory army service and afterwards I backpacked for a couple of years. So I you went to university after a while. Um, so it wasn't like a straight into uh, straight into my uni degree and straight into my career. Um, and then when I started studying, you know, I kind of enjoyed the accounting side, but, you know, I didn't particularly enjoy that. I enjoyed the numbers. I didn't enjoy the accounting side, I'll put it. Um, and then when I started working at a proper corporate job and working more along the side, then the investment banking job, when you're looking at actual companies and you understand how a transaction works and how public markets work and how an acquisition works and what makes the company grow and through organic and inorganic opportunities, that makes you really sort of, you know, that that's why I guess I found the passion into it and really, got me interested in into um into understanding like how do you do it and for yourself as well and, and is, can you talk me through that I, I know it's a big um thing in israel the compulsory service uh, in the military right what did you sort of learn there obviously everyone's doing it so it's not unusual right like everyone sort of does it um but, but were there things you learned there that when you meet people now in australia or from different environments who haven't gone through that that you sort of look back and realize that was a good thing or quite unique versus, you know, other countries that don't have that component? Um, yeah, look, again, that was a very long time ago. I can tell you that, you know, it's a good, helps build your leadership skills, your organizational skills, your people skills. Um, these are sort of the first three that come to mind because you go from literally being 18, living at home with your parents where everything is uh, being taken care of to 
everything is, you know, being basically mandated to you. You got to wake up at this time. You have to be at this place at that time. You have to do this. You have to do that for very low, for, for at least for the first eight to nine months. So it's a big change, but I guess you grow into it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then what brought you to Australia? When did you make that jump over to Australia? Um, I came here in 2004 and I went, um, I just came into backpack actually. And I backpacked and after um, basically a couple of years of backpacking, I, uh, I stayed. And was there something about Australia that particularly appealed to you that made you think, you know, there's better opportunities here than back home or you, did you fall in love or, or, or what happened? Yeah, uh, yeah I actually did meet a, I actually did meet a girl uh, and then that sort of like got me, you know, I just decided I'll come study here instead of going and studying in Israel. Okay, excellent. And, and yeah. so what made you want to start Live Vajua? You're interested in business, um, doing M&A, you know, like you said, buy-side, getting really involved in, in the sort of high-level, <laughs> big deals, corporate. Did something trigger that event to sort of start your own um, business? Um, yeah, look, I think um, myself and my co-founder, we sort of like went on to like, and um, we started sort of like looking into what we're consuming and what we're putting into our body. And initially, we sort of got involved in the in in one of our brands, the 13 Seeds Investors. Um, and we sort of saw the opportunity, which was focused purely on hemp foods. And we were like, okay, well, there's something, there's, the opportunity with hemp is sort of interesting. Um, when we started then uh, looking into extending the range, we sort of said, okay, well, we don't want to just do one line of product. We want to do like a number of other products. So we set up Levajur um, that owns 13 Seeds and also our skincare brand that's currently in development that we announced on the SX called 8 Seeds that it will be, um, like I said, like a skincare brand. Um, and what we sort of like, what drove us to start that was um, we really wanted to, I guess, optimize living our best life and how do we actually um, just, you know, enjoy life longer and healthier. Um, and then we started looking at supplements and what supplement you put into your body and, you know, looking into trends and um, and biohacking, I guess you can call it, of like intermittent fasting or anything else, um, ice baths and infrared saunas and all that. And we sort of said, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of see if we can develop a product. And um, developing a product is actually very, very different to what we did before. Um, lucky for us, um, we found a great formulation chemist that our CTO now, and he helped us develop um, what is today, I'd like to say it's probably the fastest selling Trumix supplement in Australia. That's our TheraJoint product. And, and did some people see that as a bit of a detour, like you said, from finance, corporate M&A into sort of health products and supplements? Or were you investing in those type of brands? You knew the space well, or was it more of a personal passion that led you to that sector? Um, no, I was investing in the, in the space before and also investing in the, space, in the space for myself as in going on my own sort of like health-focused sort of um, expeditions. Um, I guess... I was very conscious of, um, you know, you don't, you don't need to be like, you don't need to, you know, running the company is very different to actually um, running the company, launching the company is very different to like what you, you know, for developing the product, for example, the two different skill sets. Some people have both, some people have only one. Um, so for us, it was just to focus on, you know, developing like amazing products that are, that are, that are doing what they said they will do. 
Okay. But do you find like that's not as common an area for M&A and investors to sort of play in that space, especially at the small end? Is it people invest oh, in yeah. tech, they invest in, you know? You'd not, be surprised. Not yeah, I, think, I think you'd be surprised. I guess it depends. Like I still invest in tech. I still invest in, com- in tech companies separately, obviously, because I'm a pretty active investor. But um, you'll, be, you'll be surprised. I think that you'll see that like, you know, um, a lot I'm, I haven't obviously looked at it but I'm guessing there's a lot of people that did M&A and then went and found their own company or worked in a business environment because it's a good way to learn the core skill set of what you need to find in a business and what's important and I guess the pitfalls of what to be um, cautious of. Yeah I guess I'm thinking the sort of health area more specifically is a less sort of common pathway but like you said if you're interested in business and a vertical makes sense to to then um, go into that and, and so what was the first yeah. 12 months like the good and the bad once you've you really focused in on this opportunity um, you've got a, a good broad sort of background um, were some things easier than expected some things harder than expected? Um, look I think um, the, cha- the challenges that we have today are not the challenges we had 12 months ago and the challenges we will have 12 months from now won't be the challenges we have, um, you know, today. So a, a business is a living organism, I guess, and you always grow. And when when you grow, the challenges you have are different to what you had before. Um, what, you know, initially it was how to grow the company. Now in the environment when it's how to make the company, how to be, how to grow profitably. And I'm sure that in 12 months time, it's going to be something different. Okay, and so you mentioned that sort of growth side. So you grew 77% last financial year, doing nearly a million in annual sales, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. What were some of the things that drove that sort of rapid growth and what changed as you, you know, grew and expanded? Yeah, um, mainly around probably launching of new products um, and just getting better at uh, e-commerce. We're like 97, 98% direct-to-consumer at the moment. So it was extending our reach and building a customer database. And at some point, we also hit the point of, I guess, um, decent amount of email subscribers. So that helps with like establishing like a level of customers and repeat customers. And our products have been long enough now out there um, for people to recognize them and come back and purchase again and again from us. Okay. And was some of that, like you said, that the product innovation drove that sales? Was it, again, extra sort of insights and expertise you brought to the business that helped sort of drive? What are some of those different levers that you sort of pulled to help sort of drive all that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, NPD that leads into better marketing um, with TJ listed products um, that are been, you know, that we can make some claims around that helps in our marketing um, and just the natural sort of being in the business enough time for people to recognize the brand and the story and the product. And so obviously a big success story, rapid growth, but it's not without its challenges. What were some of the hard parts as you grew? Was it fulfillment, sourcing, shipping, customers? What were some of those challenges as you rapidly grew? Yeah, look, we sort of, uh, we started growing right on the, on the outset of COVID, like right pretty much after COVID happened, we started growing really fast. Um, so logistics was, uh, logistics was a nightmare. Customer support, you know, when you go from doing um, a very small amount of orders a day to doing, you know, what you used to do in a, in a month, we, we, we have data, we do that in one day now, you know, um, gets pretty busy. Um, so there's all these growing pains, I guess, um, but nothing that, nothing that 
nothing that like we that stood in our way of, of getting the company to where it is now. So, so like you said, going from a, a month's worth of, uh, I mean, doing in, in what you used to do in a month, doing that in a day, what would you advise other people have these sort of rapid operational growth and challenges? How did you sort of handle that? I imagine some of you were planning for it. You brought in capital. You, you had a growth mandate. But, but how would you advise others who are, you know, going through that rapid growth to keep their operations, especially in your type of physical product, consumer product type business to sort of yeah, you know, support that? Yeah, systemize a lot of the, a lot of the pro- systems, a lot of the processes in the business. Um, have the SOPs ready for customer support. A lot of the time, what will take up most of your time is customers calling and having issues with their order or whatever. Find the right customers, support people because they're the front line of your of that journey for an issue, and you don't want it to even escalate to you. You want to give them a mandate to solve that problem as soon as it happens. Um, that's number one, have reliable, um, tech, tech, I guess, um, people to make sure that the website is up and running when it needs to be working. Um, and yeah, and get like good 3PL if you're using a 3PL. And is that something you chose to do, to do a 3PL instead of an in-house, um, yeah. fulfillment? Yes, that's right. We use a 3PL. Okay. And, and I mean, it started as a direct-to-consumer business and you've kept it direct-to-consumer I mean, again, was that a strategic choice versus retail distribution or that sort of other alternate channels? Um, we kind of fell into that. Uh, I wouldn't say fell into that, but it kind of happened because we saw that people were coming back and then COVID happened and we saw that we we basically spoke to our customers and they loved buying directly from us. Um, and then once we started um, marketing online more and more, they kept coming back. Um, and we just enjoyed having that relationship with them and that ongoing sort of ability to 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 build a community, I guess, around our brand. And have you done anything specific? Because it is a bit of a niche category to build that community, drive the awareness versus something people already understand, like you know, standard, you know, whey protein powder or other, you know, more um, common products. That sort of education and community piece is that something you've uniquely focused on? Yeah, we constantly upload blogs and we constantly upload, obviously, social media posts. We have a very active Facebook group um, for our customers where they ask questions uh, and we engage with them. Um, we regularly send out um, emails with, uh, with, with valuable content, I guess, um, not just like, you know, here's a sale, here's another sale, here's a discount code. Um, recipes um, and just generally, um, I guess, reach out to them you know like every every month or two we just call some of our customers and just have a chat with them literally like spend like an hour or two just just calling them yeah so like to really building that brand in the community versus just a transactional um e-commerce sort of player and, and That's how, right, yeah. what are the pros and cons being in your mind of being a publicly traded company um you know again i imagine that was a strategic choice but just talk me through that sort of thought process and then the reality of that uh, look, this is like, we can do like a two hour sort of talk about the pros and cons of that. Um, I think for some companies, it's the right thing. For some companies, it's not the right thing. Um, it's it's very personal, I guess, how comfortable you are with being a public company. As a, as a brand, I think like you should be very comfortable because, you know, we're selling health food, we're selling like, you know, supplements and health foods. Like we we're happy to be sort of scrutinized by the public and have, because we have, we know our product is good. Um, and my, uh, and 
our background is um, corporate finance and M&A. So myself and my business partner both know public markets um, and understand them. So that was one consideration. Um, I guess the cons for companies that don't have that infrastructure and don't know how the public markets work will be um, not having that, you know, that which can be quite intimidating, I guess. And being in the health food space, like you said, does that do you think that boosts the credibility? The fact that it's a publicly, yeah, I mean, obviously the regular health regulation is different than financial regulation, but do you think that generally helps your perception in the market and your brand, or it's not something your average customer even knows or or sort of cares about? Um, it's a good question. We never actually asked them if it helps increase our credibility or not, so I won't be able to answer that. I'd like to think that it that it does but without asking our customers or asking someone independently it'd be i'd be hard pressed to answer that yeah or maybe it's just the things that you go through as a public company then reflect a a greater level of of sort of professionalism than you'd see in the average sort of smaller business um you know there's a lot more corporate there's a lot more corporate governance involved and whatnot but also you know like our our products are you know we have a we have like a formulation chemist who's like a CTO and make sure that like all of our products are done to stand to a certain standard and, you know, we're not cutting corners anywhere. Um, so there's, it's, I guess both things work, work, they work very well together. Yeah. I imagine there's a culture of transparency, right? You know, your, right. your financials yeah. are public, other things, all that sort of regulation is quite there. So you're, you're showing you can handle scrutiny and regulation and um, exactly. risk management. Okay, and so zooming out a bit from your business specifically, again, you grew up overseas in Israel, you've been in Australia um, for quite a while. You know, what, what do you see entrepreneurs in Australia doing really well? And what do you see um, things that they're doing that's not as um, ideal as it could be or is you know, one step behind? Um, it's a very broad question. Um, I, I, see like, I see like a lot of companies are doing like some really great stuff and really interesting stuff. And obviously I see some companies that are not. Um, you know, there's great success stories and great companies that have been found in Australia, obviously like Canva and whatnot. Um, and I just, and sorry, I forgot the question. Yeah, <laughs> so just that? basically, maybe we'll start here. what do you see that really makes you optimistic about Australian entrepreneurship? And then where do you see maybe it's um, still leaving something on the table for further improvement? Oh, I- I, th- I think like in the last few years, you see like a lot more people that generally would end up at a corporate job uh, having a crack at it and starting their own company and just going for it rather than sort of saying like, oh, no, I prefer having my nine to five job, uh, which is really, really good to see. Yes, yeah, so it's sort of the acceptance or, or the career path for people, so to speak, to not yeah, stay right, in yeah. m forever, but to like yourself, make a transition and, and be more of a practitioner and entrepreneur. Um, versus yeah, being an yeah. M&A corporate that's person your whole life. That's right, yes. And, and then what about, I mean, do you, do you follow the, the sort of startup ecosystem in Israel? Do you follow the US? Do you follow other markets and sort of see what people are doing or you really just focus on what you're doing here more? No, I just focus on what I'm doing here, to be honest. It's um, being uh, being the MD of a public company is a full-time job and sometimes it's more than just a full-time job. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, multiple full-time jobs, <laughs> to say the least. And um, are, are yeah. there particular e-commerce brands within Australia that you sort of look to as inspiration or there have been some big success stories over the years? Are there 
any in particular that you sort of follow closely or again you really focus on your own and what you're doing and- yeah yeah we just we like to focus on our own um there's some there's some great brands out there but like we sort of focus on what we're doing and sort of focusing on what we're looking at uh we got like the we got the skincare range that we're working on um we're working we announced that to the market i think a few months ago and that's in the works now so been, we've been pretty busy with sort of like building our brands as well yeah and, and so again if you look back to that sort of 18 to 20 year old version of yourself um that's you know doing different things not sure what to do interested in business what what advice would you give someone who's in that point right now is so 18 to 20 interested in business but doesn't really know which way to go or what to do next oh um that's a good question um if I want to, if I was going to give like an entrepreneur advice, I'd basically say um, start earlier um, and just and and think sort of like bigger, I guess you know. And, and so, I mean, do you sort of not regret your time in M and A, but do you sometimes think back, hey, if I had been in business earlier, that would have helped me, or you just think in general now it's easier to start younger? I definitely don't. I definitely don't regret it, um, but I'm more thinking. Um, you know, just how would I put it? Like when you're sort of like in that mindset of like, I want to have a career in this particular field and you sort of subscribe to that like nine to five or that seven to 9 p.m., 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. type work jobs. Um, but you can always sort of like, you know, now there's a lot more opportunity out there to sort of set up your own business. Like, um, you know, tools like Shopify and whatnot, just you can, you can have a side hustle much easier than you could like 20 years ago when I was that age, you know? Yeah, so you'd say someone who's sort of not sure, maybe they still start in corporate, but they can have a side business, like you said, yep. sort of selling things direct to consumer. There's a lot of tools and sort of support for that. that these that's days, right. That's right. And even don't do, it just, don't do it yourself and start it with like a friend or two um, and that, you know, to share the load of like the, the workload um, and the ideas flowing and whatnot. But it's very, it's very, it's, it's a pretty good sort of skill to have, like even if the business doesn't do well, actually starting the business and doing it is a skill is a skill that you learn yeah so it's the education more than you know you might not make a a huge profit overnight but you learn skills that are applicable to any business buying selling people product marketing and you mentioned sort of aiming bigger is that something yourself you you didn't have as big a vision when you were sort of 18 to 20 or you just realized now that the world's bigger and there's more possibilities versus when you were younger yeah i think sort of like when you're in that um when you're when you don't have access to like to, to uh, i guess to resources and the global view that you have now after you've been doing it for a few years you you sort of like think like i'll start like a small business but you can always sort of like think like okay can i sell this to other markets can i sell this today you don't have to do it straight away but have that mindset of like what would it look like 12 months from now 36 months from now 24 months from now and so what was your vision when you were sort of 20? Was it to, again, one day start your business because that was a passion or was the vision, oh, I'll just get a good paying finance job and, and sort of enjoy it? And what, what was your vision when you were 20? Um, I'll be fully honest with you. When I was 20, my I had no vision. I did not know what I was going to do. And, and that's so- fine as well. Like you don't have to know what you're going to want to do as soon as, you know, as soon as you hit 18 or 20, you know? And so what sort of directed you? Was it just the people around you? Was it family who sort of pointed you towards sort of commerce and finance or like you said, just a general sort of interest? Yeah, it's people around me and just sort of like you naturally gravitate towards what you enjoy doing and I just found something that I enjoy doing. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I mean, do you ever um, are you still in touch with people you grew up with? Did a lot of them sort of stay in finance? Have people gone all different sort of places, or have you sort of lost touch a bit with people um, from that? No, people people I grew up with actually they're all engineers, um, and they're all still working as engineers. So um, they're very different to me. Okay, and, and do they sort yeah. of relate to what you do, or is just such a different world they struggle to sort of fully comprehend it? Um, a little bit. I guess we talk about it a little bit, but it doesn't cover too much. You know, it's um, it's it's a little bit different. You know, they kind of know what I do and I kind of know what they do. But you know, when you see your friends, like you don't really talk about. You know, at least we don't talk about work. We just talk about you know friend stuff. You know. Yeah, it's a personal connection, and, and yeah. the fact that your day jobs are different isn't as important. And, and so, yeah. going back to your company, what's the sort of medium term, five to ten year vision for the company? Um, that's a good question. Look, um, we I'm kind of restricted what I can say because we're a public company. Um, but obviously, we're we've got like a 13 seeds brand. We've got like a eight seeds brand in the works. Um, these are sort of like the what we're working on now. Um, at the moment, obviously, with uh, with the valuations, with public markets and the markets in general down, we think that there'll be a pretty um, pretty good opportunity in the market in the near future new to medium term future to consolidate brands that weren't profitable will um will try and raise money and if not they'll try and consolidate there'll be potentially uh, an opportunity to to uh, for some brands to step up and some that won't um i guess it's always very important to look at that um but we're focusing on what we're doing and continue growing our sort of um as uh, both our brands so when you say consolidation, is that in terms of you uh, purchasing other brands and bringing them under the umbrella, or you mean more generally within your own portfolio? Just in, and- just, just in general, I think that there will be a lot of uh, iOS changes and then general sort of like market sentiment. Um, I suspect there will be like quite a few direct-to-consumer brands or small startups that will be looking into consolidating with, uh, with some of their peers. Okay, and is your market mainly Australia at the moment, or do you sell and export sort of internationally? Yeah, we sell um we sell some in the we sell mostly Australia, some in the US, and then we've got like um some other countries that just buy occasionally from us. Okay, and is that part of the vision as well to be more of a global brand in the future, or is it more products but within the same sort of market? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. It's um launching new products and launching them into new markets. Uh, is both important to us. We got to do it obviously in a very um, economical way, and not just launch because launching a brand in the US is very expensive. Um, but having said that, there's platforms today that you can use to increase your reach in a very um, cost-efficient way. So overall, you th- you think the you know again the opportunities for an upstart sort of uh, direct-to-consumer product brand are a lot bigger than they used to be because, like you said, there, there's more cost-effective ways to launch new products and new markets. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's um, with the right brand, if you sort of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm by no means, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert on it, but it's much easier to launch a brand now than it was 20 years ago, I'd imagine. And so what advice would you give someone maybe, again, who doesn't yet have the backing, uh, the financial backing of a, a bigger company or, or, again, the capital who's trying to sort of bootstrap, I suppose, a, a direct-to-consumer product business? Are there particular things you've seen, you know, running it and learnings that you would sort of pass on? Yeah, look, rely on like a lot of free tools and low cost tools like Canva. Um, do some online free courses for copywriting. Um, understand how Shopify works and templates from websites and 
copy other websites sometimes if you need to in terms of templates and the presentation take your own photos um you don't actually need a lot of capital to launch a to launch um, a DTC brand. Um, if you find the right supplier, like inventory is probably gonna be your biggest expense and you don't always need to buy like 10,000 or 20,000 of each. You can start with, with much smaller amounts. And, and what about in terms of sort of product selection and market? Like you said, there's so many, um, you know, different products, different channels from the marketing side, but what about picking, like you said, whether it's health or whether it's a different sort of category, anything in particular should people follow what they're passionate about should they follow where they see a underserved market or a, a sort of business opportunity i think always you got to always sort of follow something that you're passionate about um i don't see myself for example working as passionately about something that i wouldn't really generally care about um and i'd like to think that like if you work on something that you're passionate about it'll be much easier for you um Having said that, you've got to understand your unit economics and understand your cost of traffic. And if you get, you know, if you work, if you go into a space that the cost of traffic and the unit economics just don't stack up, even if you're passionate about it and you won't be able to change that. Yeah. So it's that harmony between, like you said, business fundamentals, um, like yeah. gross margins, but also, you know, if you hate wine, there's no point starting a wine e-commerce business because at the end of the day, that's where you're spending all your time, right? So they both have to kind of tick the boxes on both sides. Yeah, exactly. Okay, excellent. Are there any other long-term sort of things that you've got on the horizon that you're sort of looking to or, um, again, other ways you would sort of, um, you know, you're working towards? Um, no, not really, actually. These are the two things, everything that we've discussed so far. Excellent. And do you have any final <laughs> thoughts or words for the audience, um, anything you'd like to leave them with? Um. Just, uh, no, actually, no. <laughs> That's no. a good question, but I don't actually have anything yet. Just if anyone that listens to have any question about what we're doing or wants to reach out, they can just reach me on my socials on LinkedIn or whatever, or shoot me an email or whatever. I'm always happy to have a chat and anyone needs any advice or whatever, they can always reach out. Excellent. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.